Alright, so good morning again. If you would open your Bibles to the Gospel according to Matthew. Um, as always, I count it a privilege to be given the opportunity to open up the Scriptures with all of you this morning to see what the Lord has for us. And I'm glad that uh, Pastor Scott, who just left the room, he's finally let me preach on some miracles. You know, he's been gobbling up all the miracles here uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. And so I get some miracles this morning. So I'm pretty excited about that. The sermon text for this morning is from Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 34. I'm not going to read them all right now. They're in fact a parallel uh, in many ways of the reading from Luke chapter 8 that you just heard. But we're going to work our way through the text in Matthew 9 as we go. So let's join there together. Uh, Quickly, as part of some introductory remarks this morning, I want to call your attention to two topics that I am not going to dwell on this morning. So look with me, if you would, at Matthew chapter 9, verse 30, specifically. Chapter 9, verse 30, it says, And the eyes of the two blind men were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. And if you skip down just to uh, verse 32 there, Verse 32 reads this way, As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. Now verse 34, But the Pharisees said, He, Jesus, casts out demons by the prince of demons. Now I'm not going to address these two verses, verses 30 and 34, this morning for two reasons. First, I simply don't have the time this morning to do either of these topics justice along with everything else that we have to discuss in the text. And second, both of these topics, what is sometimes called the messianic secret in verse 30, and the accusation of the Pharisees against Jesus that he is casting out demons by the prince of demons, Baal Zabul, in verse 34, they both occur again in Matthew chapter 12. So the plan is to take on both of these topics when, Lord willing, uh, either Pastor Scott or I get to Matthew chapter 12. Now, one additional introductory remark before we dive in. You may remember a couple of sermons back, if you were here, that I presented you with a high-level outline of the gospel according to Matthew. I noted that Matthew begins with four chapters of introduction. He's recounting the genealogy, the conception, the birth, the baptism, and the temptations of Jesus of Nazareth. Then, beginning in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew begins this rhythm, this rhythm of extended discourse followed by narrative. Five times Matthew does this in his gospel. And if you remember, these extended discourses, as we saw, are the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7, the Apostolic Instructions in chapter 10, the Kingdom Parables in chapter 13, the Discourse on the Church in chapter 18, and finally the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. And if you remember, we talked briefly about why perhaps Matthew chose to structure his gospel in this way. The point of all this for this morning is that my plan as we head down through Matthew 9 verse 34 is to essentially wrap up the first beat of this rhythm. And Lord willing, Pastor Scott will proceed into the second beat 
with the last couple of verses of Matthew 9, which lead into the apostolic instructions of chapter 10, right? So that's the plan. We're going to look at verses 18 through 34 of Matthew chapter 9 and wrap up this first section of Matthew's gospel. So, because I'm wrapping up, I want to do a little bit of summary, a little bit of backtrack. So we're going to summarize the miracles that we see, we have seen, in chapters 8 and 9. So, in your Bible, if you're open to Matthew 9, just turn back a page or so to Matthew chapter 8. And I want to do just a quick run-through of the miracles that we've already seen Jesus perform in this section of Matthew. So, we're just going to list them off together, and you can follow along. Miracle number 1, Jesus... Jesus cleanses a leprous man in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Number 2, Jesus heals a centurion, centurion's paralyzed servant. That's in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. Number 3, Jesus then heals Peter's mother-in-law who had a fever. So that's the first three. Then there were a few verses on the cost of discipleship. We pick up again in chapter 8, verse 23. Jesus stills the Sea of Galilee in verses 23 through 27, where he's exercising his authority over nature. Miracle number 5, Jesus exorcises exorcises demons on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. That's verses 28 to 34. He's exorcising his authority over the demonic realm. And then miracle number 6, Jesus heals and forgives a paralytic who's let down through the roof. That's in chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. And this is, as we said at the time, a clear claim to the deity of Jesus in his forgiving of sins. Then, as we saw last time we were in Matthew, just about a month ago or so, Jesus spends a few sentences discussing the old and new wine. The old and the new wineskins. We're not going to rehash that here. You can find that message on Sermon Audio if you're interested. Now, when we arrive at verse 18 of Matthew chapter 9, what we will see today in our text are four more miracles. Four more miracles, okay? Which, if you're keeping track, doing the math, makes this a perfect ten. Ten miracles here in this section of Matthew. Perhaps this is a coincidence. I think that's extremely unlikely. I think Matthew knows exactly what he's doing. So in our text this morning, it's a high-level summary. Miracle number seven, Jesus heals a hemorrhaging woman in verses 20 through 22. Miracle number 8, Jesus heals the daughter of a synagogue ruler named Jairus in verses 23 through 26. Jesus restores the sight of two blind men in verses 27 through 31. And finally, miracle number 10, Jesus loosens the tongue of a mute, demon-possessed man in verses 32 through 34. Now, Not only does Matthew give us this perfect ten of miracles here in this first section of his gospel, but part of our challenge as we study the scriptures is this. When we read the Bible, especially the narrative portions like the gospel accounts that we're considering this morning, part of our challenge is to try and understand why these particular events from the life and ministry of Jesus are included. Remember, Matthew's not typing on a keyboard Right? Using Microsoft Word or Google Docs. 
He's using the most ancient of tools to tell the story of Jesus. Most likely some kind of quill written on some kind of parchment made of animal skin. And the truth be told, this was some tough sledding, writing things down in the first century. And every copy they made had to be written by hand, right? What's the point? The point is this. If you're going to be using a quill and parchment, then you've got to think long and hard about what it is you're going to write and not write. Now, of course, we believe that the Holy Spirit is guiding the process. That is true. We believe and affirm with everything we have in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. Every word breathed out by God Himself according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. But... But Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and Paul and Peter and James, these men were involved in the process. And simply speaking, Matthew sits down to write, reflecting on the life and ministry of the Savior who called him, Jesus, and he includes certain events in his narrative for a reason. So let's see if we can get some insight together. Let's begin with Matthew chapter 9. Please go there, verses 18 through 26. And we're going to look at the healing of the hemorrhaging woman. And we're going to look as well at Jairus' daughter. So please follow along in your text. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. While he, Jesus, was saying these things to them, that is, them is the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees. You can see that in verse 17. Behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Verse 20, And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Verse 23, and when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. I'm going to begin with the hemorrhaging woman because this is technically the first miracle that occurs in our text and actually we're going to end with her too. Uh, That's what we call foreshadowing, so stick around for the end. Of course, her story is sandwiched by the story of Jairus. He's the ruler mentioned in verse 18 and his dead daughter. But let's begin with the woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood in verse 20. Now, why is this story here? I think this story here and the story of Jairus' daughter, they're both here together because first they build on something that Matthew has already told us. And yet, second, each of these miracles provides something unique with regard to the ministry of Jesus. So let's see these things together. 
Turn back with me, if you will, just one page or so to the beginning of Matthew chapter 8 again, where we started this morning. Matthew begins this perfect ten of miracles with Jesus healing a leprous man. Verses 1 through 4 of Matthew chapter 8. Now, when Pastor Scott preached on this miracle, he rightly pointed out that this is Jesus in his priestly work. You might remember that. See, in the Levitical law, in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, specifically in Leviticus chapters 13 and 14, God gives Moses and Israel cleanliness laws regarding leprosy, which is essentially a stand-in term for various skin diseases in the ancient Near East. But what's most important for us to know from Pastor Scott's sermon, as a reminder for us this morning, it's most important that we realize that lepers were not to be touched. Lepers were unclean. And listen, anyone who touched them became unclean. Lepers had to live outside the camp. And anyone who touched a leper also had to go outside the camp. Outside the city. You remember, right? When Judah Ben-Hur's mother, right? Come on, go with me here. Miriam and his sister Tirzah, they acquire leprosy in a Roman prison. Does everybody remember like this, this, right? You have to. And if you haven't seen Ben-Hur, you need to leave as soon as this is over and go watch it. But in order to see them, Esther and Judah had to go outside the city to the disgusting leper colony. Miriam and Tirzah were outcasts. And later in the movie, you remember, right? Judah and Esther bring them into Jerusalem so they can see Jesus. And the city folks there start to throw stones at them. Their leprosy made them unclean, outcasts, utterly rejected. You don't have to go there, but here are just a couple of verses from Leviticus 13. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. This is clear. And in Leviticus 13 and 14, if you read there closely, the priests are told they must examine the leprosy. They are to look at the disease, but never, ever touch. Matthew chapter 8 verse 1. When he, Jesus, came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Verse 3. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the man's leprosy was cleansed. So just see afresh this morning the scandal. What's the point of this? The point is that this is no mere Levitical priest, this Rabbi Jesus. And this is exactly what we're gearing up to see on Wednesday nights. You should come. It's by Zoom. You can stay home. 
This rabbi Jesus is no mere Levitical priest. The Levitical priests of the Old Covenant, the descendants of Moses' brother Aaron, they could not touch a leper lest they themselves become unclean. But Jesus, the Savior Jesus, not only doesn't become unclean, but He makes the leprous man clean. Now, Please turn forward a page, back to Matthew 9, verse 20. Matthew 9, verse 20, as we pick up in our text from today. Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house, and this is what we read there in Matthew 9, verse 20. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched, touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Do you see the scandal building here? First, please note that we're not talking about 21st century America, right? Where a woman is relatively free to approach a man, say, at the office, and put her hand on his shoulder, right? Unless we detected some sort of nefarious overtones or something like that in such a touch. Very few of us, honestly, would balk at such a gesture. But that is not what we're talking about in Matthew chapter 9. This is a first century Jewish woman reaching out to touch a Jewish man. And not just any Jewish woman, but a hemorrhaging Jewish woman. And not just any Jewish man, but a very popular and well-respected rabbi. I mean, you have to see this. This is, this is crazy. All societal norms and like a half dozen Levitical laws just gone. In Matthew 9. It's hard in a culture like ours to even come up with a good analogy. I mean, in our culture, sadly, hardly anything is off limits anymore. But many of you do remember a time when there were a few cultural mores left, don't you? Things that simply shouldn't be done in public, else there would be some kind of scandal. Anyway, please know that this episode in first century Judea was a scandalous thing. This hemorrhaging woman, she, like the leprous man in Matthew chapter 8, is unclean. Again, please listen from Leviticus chapter 15. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. That's Leviticus 15 verses 25 through 27. But Jesus touches her. Rather, she touches Jesus. Scandal of scandals. She's instantly healed. And again, Jesus does not become unclean according to the Levitical law. 
And please take note, Jesus is not only not made unclean, he is not offended in any way. Look at verse 22. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. This term daughter in Matthew chapter 9, verse 22, it's a term of endearment and affection. How do we know that? We know that because it's the exact same term that Jairus uses when he's begging Jesus to come and heal his daughter. Do you see the connection between these two stories? This unclean woman has been accepted by Jesus into his family. And this makes it unique in Matthew's gospel to this point. And I think that's why Matthew includes this story. Previously, Matthew had given us the story of the unclean, leprous man whom he willingly reached out and touched and healed. And now Matthew gives us the story of the unclean, bleeding woman who believes who believes that Jesus can heal her in a scandalous act of reaching out against all cultural norms and Jesus accepts her. He calls her daughter. Who are these people who call Christianity the root and foundation of, quote, the Western oppressive patriarchy? End quote. Do you see what Jesus has done for this broken, unclean woman? It's so beautiful. And it's so countercultural. Now, onto this precious little 12 year old girl. She's dead. And a broken father. And let's look together at the relevant verses. Look at Matthew 9. I'm going to pick up in verse 18. Please follow along. While he, Jesus, was saying these things to them, that is, the tax collectors and sinners feasting at Matthew's house. Behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Verse 23. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. So we turn from one daughter by adoption to another daughter, Jairus' daughter. And we're told in Mark and Luke's accounts that this Jairus is actually the ruler of the synagogue there in Capernaum, and this little girl is his only daughter. So can you feel the pain, the desperation in his voice as he cries out, Jesus, my daughter is dying, even dead. Please come and lay your hand on her. I know she will live. And Jesus rises and goes. After the interaction with the hemorrhaging woman, Jesus arrives at Jairus' house and he finds the minstrels and the professional mourners there. Now, this was a cultural thing 
These persons would actually be hired to play dirges and to evoke a mournful attitude from the dead person's friends and family. This is actually common still today in the East. And there's even a sense of this in our own culture, isn't there? Like when we go to the funeral home, right, it's not quiet. Often there are minor key arrangements playing even in our funeral homes. Anyway, Jesus sees all of these mourners in Jairus' house. And Matthew says that the crowd was making a commotion. And Jesus says to them, go away. In Luke 8.52, which Pastor Scott read earlier, Jesus says, do not weep, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And I'll tell you, I, I, I don't know what it is, but this next clause at the end of verse 24, if you go there, and for some reason, it gets me so riled up. Mind you, Jesus knows what he's about to do. He's about to take Jairus and his wife and Peter and James and John into this little girl's bedroom, and he's going to raise this precious little dead girl, the only daughter of a desperate daddy. He's going to raise her back to life. Verse 24, and they laughed at him. The people in Jairus' house, these professional mourners hired to cry. Instead, they laugh at the Son of God. I don't know, maybe it's just me, but every time I read through the New Testament, I get it worked up over this clause three times. Once in Matthew, once in Mark, and once in Luke. So Jesus takes these five with him and he goes into this little girl's room and he takes her by the hand and he touches this little girl's lifeless body. Now, let me once more tell you why it is clear from this account that Jesus is no mere Levitical Old Covenant priest. Listen again, Leviticus 21. Leviticus is talking about the Israelite high priest. Here's what it says. The priest who is chief among his brothers. That's the high priest of Israel. The priest who is chief among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil is poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose, nor tear his clothes. Verse 11 of Leviticus 21, he shall not go into any dead bodies, nor make himself unclean, even for his father or for his mother. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Not only is Jesus no mere Levitical priest, but he is a high priest of a completely different kind. The Israelite high priest was never allowed to touch a dead body, not even his father or mother. Why? Why? Because there always had to be a high priest functioning in the tabernacle or functioning in the Jewish temple to be the mediator between the sinful Israelites and a holy God. He could never risk uncleanness. He could never take a day off, even to mourn the death of a parent or the entire, listen, the entire worship program falls apart. The old covenant mediator is gone and the Israelites are ruined. But here, Jesus of Nazareth, a new high priest of a new covenant, a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews chapter 6 verse 20. He takes this precious little girl 
Jairus' daughter, he takes her by the hand, and in Mark and Luke's accounts, he speaks to her. He speaks to this little dead girl. And she comes to life. We see how Jesus the Savior cares about children. A leprous man, a hemorrhaging woman, and now a precious little child. The dead daughter of a desperate daddy. All unclean. And now given new life by the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. You see, in these situations, these unclean Israelites do not make Jesus unclean. Again, which sets him apart from the old covenant priesthood. But there was one day when the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was in fact made unclean. Please hear this. And it was at the cross of Calvary, friends. On that day, the sins of all who would believe were finally and fully laid on Him. And we sing, we're going to sing, how deep the Father's love for us. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. Listen, the Father turns His face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. That is what we will sing. And much has been said about the line, the Father turns His face away. But you know what? For all of the theological challenges that language that, 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 that language presents for the systematic theologians, and there is, I tell you, I believe that it is correct. And here's why. Because it is simply a poetic way of saying the exact same thing that the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 3.13. That is, listen, on the cross, when all of the sins of all who would believe were laid upon the Savior Jesus Christ, on the cross, He became a curse in the place of sinners like you and me. And not only cursed, but unclean forced outside the camp just as the preacher to the Hebrews writes Jesus that he might sanctify his people through his own blood suffered where? Where? Outside the gate. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 12. So I hope you see it. The scandal, the beauty, the life-giving power of Jesus, the crucified Son of God. Now, risen, the great high priest. May God give us eyes to see it. All right, let's move on. The healing of the blind and deaf men. Very quickly, verse 27 of Matthew chapter 9. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. Verse 31, But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. 
Verse 32, as they were going away, behold, a demon oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke and the crowds marveled saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. Let's deal with these two miracles a little bit more quickly, and then we're going to get into some application. Okay? So first, in these verses, do you see the high view that these blind men have of Jesus? Have mercy on us. What do they call him? Son of David, they cry out. And when Jesus asks them if they believe that he is able to give them their sight, they say, yes, Lord. Here we see the same thing that I mentioned in my last sermon. The Pharisees, listen, this, the Pharisees and the Jewish religious leaders of the first century can't see who Jesus is. But these blind guys can. Isn't that amazing? They can see who Jesus is when the religious types can't. They're blind. What's the point of these last two miracles of this perfect ten? I think there are a couple of things happening here in the interest of time. Just let, let me mention just one. I think Matthew is setting up for the questions that John the Baptist's disciples are going to be asking on behalf of John, who's already been put in prison. So very quickly, please turn two pages forward. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. I want you to see that Matthew is doing this on purpose. <coughs> Matthew 11, verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, that's John the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and he said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Verse 4. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. Verse 5. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So you can see that many of these perfect ten miracles are setting up what's to come soon in Matthew's gospel account. Let's spend our last few moments here this morning with some application. What do we see here in these texts from Matthew, chapters 8 and 9, that we can walk away with, that will make a difference for us today? Even in these next few moments, as we head into the Lord's Supper together. Let me begin with a couple of verses from Matthew chapter 8 again, and then we'll launch off of there. Because there's something in these chapters that we all desperately need to see. Again, just turn a couple of pages back to Matthew 8, if you will, please. We didn't touch on these verses before. Matthew 8, verses 16 and 17. That evening they brought to Jesus many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. As many of you know, this quotation here in Matthew chapter 8 verse 17 is from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah chapter 53 verse 4. Now, a couple of weeks ago during our Wednesday night Bible study, which if you aren't paying attention is another shameless plug, 
for Wednesday night study. We discussed how physical realities, physical realities under the Old Covenant point us to spiritual realities under the New Covenant. And what I want to make sure that you see here is that by quoting from Isaiah 53 verse 4, Matthew is telling us something similar. You see, Jesus... In his ministry in Israel, during his earthly life, he's living and he's ministering under the old covenant. He was a Jew born under the law, Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. And in his ministry, part of his ministry to his own people, the Jews, part of his ministry, says Isaiah, is to heal physical infirmities, to heal physical sicknesses, even to restore those who were physically dead, like Lazarus in John chapter 11, or Jairus' daughter here in Matthew chapter 9. Isaiah says again, look at verse 17 of Matthew chapter 8. He, the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. That's clearly being played out here in these healings. But what does Isaiah go on to say in the next two verses? Verses 5 and 6. Pastor Scott read it right before the sermon. Isaiah 53, you don't have to go there. You can if you want, if you can get there fast. But Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. But he, this same suffering servant, whom Matthew identifies as Jesus of Nazareth, this same person who, in verse 4, took our illnesses and bore our diseases, he, listen, he was pierced, why? For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, 700 years before the Son of God walked the earth, the prophet Isaiah makes a transition from physical illnesses, physical diseases, physical maladies, to spiritual illnesses, disease, and maladies. And now, we must do the same. What I want you to see in Matthew chapters 8 and 9, I want you to see you. I want you to see you, apart from the grace of God. Because your sin, your breaking of God's commandments, written on tablets of stone by the very finger of God, because of your hatred, which Jesus has already told us in the Sermon on the Mount, is murder. And because of your lusting, which Jesus has told us, is adultery. Because of your lying, because of your coveting, because of your unwillingness to even acknowledge the one true God of the Bible as God, let alone worship Him in a manner that He deserves, because of your use of His name as a curse word. Because you have done all these things. You are the unclean leper spiritually diseased, 
covered in the filthy rags of sin and transgression. And I'm not making this up because the prophet Isaiah himself says this in chapter 64, verse 6 of his Old Testament book. He says, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. And and to be honest with you, if you understand what's being said there, in Isaiah 64, it's very difficult in mixed company to explain to you the language that Isaiah is using. It's not good. But because you have done all these things, you are the unclean woman. You're spiritually bleeding out as your life wastes away. And if you've had any sense of your need for spiritual things at all ever in your life, you've spent your time and your money on remedies that have not appeased your conscience, even as she, the hemorrhaging woman, quote, had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse, Mark chapter. Because you have done all these things, any one of which would be enough for a righteous and holy God to condemn you for all eternity, you are the paralytic of Matthew 9. Spiritually motionless and helpless and unable to make any spiritual progress. You are the blind man, spiritually unable to see the glory of God. You are the deaf and mute man, spiritually unable to hear the good news of the gospel that Jesus, listen, Jesus suffered and died as a substitute for sinners like you and me. Spiritually unable to open your mouth to declare God's glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the people, Psalm 96 verse 3. And you, friend, are just like Jairus' daughter, spiritually dead in your transgressions and sins in which you are even now walking, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. This is not me, I'm just telling you what it says. I mean, can, can you hear what I'm saying? On this side of the cross at Calvary, in the New Covenant, these physical diseases that we read about in Matthew chapter 8 verse, and, and chapter 9 are diseases and maladies. They're meant to tell us about our spiritual condition. Unless you think that I'm standing here behind some kind of bully pulpit accusing you of things that I have not done, I can assure you that when I walked into, listen, when I walked into Homestead United Presbyterian Church on a Sunday morning in June of 2000, 22 years ago, I was spiritually unclean. I was spiritually paralyzed. I was spiritually blind and deaf and as dumb as anyone. Yes, I was physically sitting in that third pew. I can go there now. But I was spiritually as dead as Jairus' daughter, deader than a doornail. Friends. But here comes Jesus. He cleanses sinners with his own precious blood, shed on the cross at Calvary. All spiritual leprosy and hemorrhaging healed by His mercy. His Spirit gives energy to the spiritually paralyzed that they might, quote, walk even as Jesus 
walked, 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. He gives sight to the spiritually blind that they might, quote, see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. He opens the ears of the spiritually deaf that they might hear the precious gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and, quote, ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He loosens the tongue of the spiritually mute that they might sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in their hearts to God. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. He gives life to those who are spiritually dead that whether they eat or drink or whatever they do, they would do it all for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. And you who are already in Christ Jesus, you know this is who you were. You know this is what He, by His grace and mercy, has done for you. Does God still heal physical maladies? We believe that He does. We have said it from this pulpit before, and I will say it again this morning. We believe in healing. We do not believe in healers. But a hundred years from now, except for maybe Zach's little daughter, the rest of us, our bodies are going to be in the ground. And the only thing that's going to matter is whether or not you were spiritually healed by the precious blood of the Savior Jesus Christ. That decision will already be been made. This side of the cross, and and I'll, I'll finish with this, but just think with me for one more moment of that hemorrhaging woman. Matthew 9, go ahead. Matthew 9, verse 20. This side of the cross, there is a different garment of Jesus Christ upon which we must lay hold. And it is the perfect righteousness of Him who was crucified. A perfect righteousness that will cause us to stand before Him on the last great day, which is most assuredly coming. And to do this, to lay hold of this perfect garment, there are no charity events that you have to work. There is no minimum number of community service hours that you have to accrue. And I don't mean to be overly offensive. It was interesting that Pastor Mike brought up Rome earlier this morning, but just putting it out there, there is no minimum number of Hail Marys or Our Fathers that you must speak before you can come. In fact, there's nothing you can do. We must simply see our uncleanness We must admit our helplessness before a great and holy God and simply trust the Savior. Trust Him with a simple faith that is convinced that Jesus can and will heal us of all of our sin-based spiritual infirmities. A faith that is convinced that Jesus... Listen, look look at the hemorrhaging woman. A, a, A faith that is convinced... That Jesus will turn his face toward us, 
even amidst the crowd and say, my child, your faith has made you whole. Jesus is saying right now, as he said to the blind man, do you you believe that I'm able to do this? He is able, my friends. So will you trust him? Will you receive him this day? The offer is given, and the free gift of eternal life is within your grasp. Let's pray.